Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and I'm your host. And we're going to look into what's going on in the political world here in the United States of America in 2023. Oh, my goodness. So, how is everybody doing? Uh, We are now officially in spring. Thank you. And uh, I can tell because my allergies are starting to act up again. Always look forward to that. But anyway, we've got an interesting show for you today. We're going to jump right in right after we update on where we are with COVID, as always. Uh, Currently, we're at 103.9 million cases. Just shy of 104 million people have been affected and infected with uh, the COVID virus. Uh, We've had 1.13 million people who have died from the disease and 674 million people have received vaccinations. Uh, So we're still making progress, but we still have uh, so much to do and things we need to be responsible for. And you know what they are. We talk about them every week on the show. So uh, let's get right into it. Um, First of all, if you've been a listener to uh, my podcast over the years, um, we're now some 166 or 167 uh, episodes deep, uh, you know that I always say that one of the things we need to do is to make sure we dig wider and dig deeper and gather more information and read not only between the lines, but look for the subtext. Uh, and this this first story kind of plays that role uh, as well as something we need to look at the deeper context of what's going on Uh, Because on the surface, it may seem one way, but when you peel it back, uh, there is an undercurrent that really needs uh, our concern and our attention. And I'm speaking about an action by Republican lawmakers in North Carolina. And this is a story that uh, popped up uh, Sunday. And uh, the headline is, Republican lawmakers pass repeal of Jim Crow law and Dems are seething. And uh, basically the story is talking about the Republican lawmakers in North Carolina. They passed a repeal of a Jim Crow era gun law last week that was initially intended to prevent black Americans from owning firearms. And as a result of this action, Democratic lawmakers are livid. Uh, The bill, and it's titled SB 41, would repeal the state's pistol purchase permit requirement that tasks local sheriffs with ensuring residents have, quote, good moral character before they can uh, be issued a firearm. The law, which was established in 1919, was intended to circumvent the 14th Amendment uh, in 1868, which required that gun control laws be racially neutral, according to attorney and historian opinions in the North Carolina Law Review. And just by way of reference, the 14th 14th Amendment is that amendment that, uh, among other things, protects and and guarantees uh, fair representation, equal representation under the law. Essentially, that all people, uh, all citizens of the United States will get equal treatment under the law. So, what the, the article talks about is how states uh, have circumvented the 14th Amendment by 
implementing permitting requirements or banning handguns altogether, uh, opting to allow, quote, special deputies or white men to own guns. Uh, and this is according to information from the review. And uh, other states, such as Florida and New York, also chose to implement permitting requirements to circumvent the 14th Amendment. So the, the article talks about how uh, when it's taken on its face, uh, this, this repeal, um, you know, the, the North Carolina permit system would appear to be racially neutral on its face, but when taken into context with actions of surrounding states and the attitudes uh, regarding minorities at the time of enactment, uh, the permit system's intention was to keep minorities from possessing handguns. And, you know, just by way of understanding that, uh, black North Carolinians are still nearly three times as likely to be denied a permit compared to the white population. And again, this is from the North Carolina Law Review. Uh, the Democratic uh, governor, Roy Cooper, vetoed a version of this bill back in 2021, uh, saying, or, or according to one of the uh, North Carolina reps, uh, Pricey Harrison, he said, quote, the sheriffs know best back home who should and should not be carrying a pistol. Uh, and he goes on to say, there is so much more we could be doing about keeping our communities safe but unleashing and letting access to guns to individuals who absolutely pose a danger to themselves and others is a real problem. And that is that underlying element of the law that uh, you would need to dig out and, and understand. What it means essentially is that right now, if you, know, you or, or you know, Joe Schmo citizen wants to purchase a handgun in North Carolina, you first have to go to the sheriff's office and go through the application process to get the permit before you can go buy a weapon. This serves as a way for uh, North Carolina law enforcement to regulate who can get or, or not get a handgun or a weapon in the state of North Carolina. And this law, this SB 41 law, would repeal that action thereby making it, it basically anybody could go and purchase a gun. Uh, you know, in, in other words, there's, there's no check or balance or background uh, confirmation before an individual can go buy a gun. And this is the element that Democrats appear to be uh, most um, upset about. According to uh, Democratic North Carolina State Senator Natasha Marcus, she said the bill, quote, is the antithesis of common sense gun reform. And according to uh, to report in the Coastland Times in North Carolina, quote, it is a relinquishment of our job to protect North Carolinians from violence. This bill is about making our communities less safe and has absolutely nothing to do with racial equality. And, you know, that's according to another uh, Democratic state rep. It will, in fact, make black communities less safe. And again, this goes back to uh, not having any check or balance on who is eligible to uh, purchase and own a, a weapon, a handgun, in the, the state of North Carolina.
the bill would remove one of the last um, checkpoints uh, to firearm ownership uh, that currently exists. And Democrats are up in arms about this, no pun intended. Um, so, again, when you see the headline, you know, where they're saying they're repealing this, quote, Jim Crow era law, uh, it's, you know, it seems on the surface that it is something that may be uh, a better approach. But when you dig in and when you take into account how the law will be interpreted and applied, uh, you can see the real problem here. So, you know, we, we will keep uh, up with this. Uh, if there are any new developments, we will, of course, bring them to you right here on Fired Up. And, you know, this, this got me to thinking that um, we need to pay attention to all of these little uh, beads that are being strung together uh, by the uh, by the right wing, by Republicans, by conservatives, and, and by the MAGA group, uh, it, it sometimes seems clear that the intention of these groups is to make uh, people of color in this country invisible and inaudible so that you don't see them and can't hear them. If you look at the, uh, the, the string of laws that have been proposed, the string of laws that have been uh, passed, the actions taken by various governors around the country, uh, it, it becomes obvious that there is a concerted effort to not just marginalize uh, people of color in this country, but to effectively disappear them. Uh, we have situations coming out of you know southern states such as you know, my, my favorites, Florida and Texas uh, and, and others, where the actions are intended to eliminate the contributions of people of color from the history of this country. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've gone into multiple discussions uh, about that on this show. But, uh, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, there is more than just an effort uh, at, keeping us away from the polls and keeping us from voting uh, it in, in uh, alignment with the so-called Southern strategy. Um, it is about, it seems, in my opinion, uh, erasing people of color from evidence of their existence here in this country in real time. Uh, we have, you know, laws in Florida being enacted by their governor that not only would eliminate, um, you know, studies of uh, African studies, but others as well. Uh, we've got Texas where, you know, uh, voter suppression and uh, disenfranchisement seem to be the order of the day. And, you know, in, in other states, we have what appears to be, as I said, a conscious effort to disappear people of color from consideration in this country uh, to make us not only uh, invisible, but to make us inaudible, to eliminate our voices. And this is something that, you know, has to be fought. 
And you know, it, it's not just a Democrat respon- democratic responsibility uh, to fight these things. It is the responsibility of all citizens of this country. Because there, there's something that also uh, is not talked about, but is an effect of these laws and, and bills and so forth going on, that it is not going to just impact people of color or African Americans or any specific uh, group in, in, in singularity. These laws, these uh, proposals, these bills are in, in effect weapons of mass destruction. Not only are they going to you know, impact their intended target, but they are going to collaterally damage uh, many of the uh, people who aren't uh, people of color in this country. You know, and I, by that I mean you know, rural voters, poor white voters, uh, you know, and other groups are going to feel the impacts of these laws, even though the intention appears to be that they are targeted toward you know, African Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans, and so forth. So it, it is for that reason that we all have to be engaged with learning and understanding and communicating with our elected officials and letting them know that you know we see what you're doing, we're not going to stand for it. If you continue it, we're going to vote you out of office. So we need to have that message, particularly as we wind down this hill toward the 2024 elections. Uh, these things are going to be critical as we look forward to that time. Turning the page to uh, something else that came across my radar, um, and at, at first I just was going to like put a check mark on it as, oh, that's interesting. But as I got more detailed into it, it uh, raised some questions that uh, I think need to be brought up. So there's an article in, um, according to United Press International, uh, on March 25th, uh, Idaho Governor Brad Little has signed legislation allowing for the execution of inmates by firing squad. And at first, you know, I thought this was just another punitive attempt at, uh, you know, impacting people of color. However, when I dug into it, I realized and I, I saw statistics that show that the majority of uh, inmates on death row in this country are in fact white. Uh, according to data from uh, 2022, uh, 1,023 uh, death row inmates uh, were white, 986 were black, and uh, 24 were Native American. So, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, as I was saying about collateral damage, um, that, you know, the, the primary, um, call it victim here, uh, isn't necessarily people of color, although the, you know, it's like 51, 49%, whatever. Um, but anyway, so uh, Friday, Governor Little signed House Bill 186, which allows firing squads as an alternate execution method to lethal injection. Apparently, and uh, I recall this story coming up, and I think we touched on it on this show, where there was a, a shortage 
and also uh, some uh, drug makers in countries that don't support the death penalty uh, have embargoed the shipment of one of the uh, drugs used in lethal injection um, death sentence uh, carried out. Uh, I believe it's phenobarbital. Uh, so the end result is that there is a shortage of the drugs needed to perform a um, death by lethal injection uh, in the states. So the states have been you know, a combination of postponing uh, uh, inmate executions as well as trying to find alternate methods. And right now, Idaho has become uh, one of five states that authorized the use of firing squads. Uh, the others include Utah, South Carolina, Oklahoma, and Mississippi. Now, this, this bill and this passing is not without controversy because um, it raises the specter of you know, costly legal battles uh, under, under the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so one of the things, you know, and according to the bill, uh, and again, this is, I guess, related to Idaho, the cost may be different in other states, but it costs about $750,000 to set up facilities for firing squads. Uh, something I didn't see answered in the articles or the discussion about this is, you know, the the composition of these firing squads. You know, are they going to be, um, you know, state police? Are they going to be civilians? Uh, who is going to? You, you'll forgive the 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 metaphor. Who is going to pull the trigger uh, on these firing squads? Uh, that wasn't discussed, um, but. You know, it it shows and it, it also brought some information about the most used method right now of lethal injection, particularly when we have a discussion about cruel and unusual punishment. Um, there is uh, there have been autopsies done uh, in in many jurisdictions, but the one cited in the article uh, cites an autopsy examined uh, report examined in 2020 by Dr. Joel Zivet, an anatomical pathologist, Mark Edgar, uh, revealed that the lungs of prisoners executed via lethal injection always showed often showed signs of pulmonary edema. Uh, this condition occurs where fluid fills the lungs, indicating that the inmates were conscious and in extreme pain during their ex their executions. The pair concluded. So. You know, we, we have laws in this country preventing cruel and unusual punishment, uh, yet the method we use uh, for, you know, executing those who are convicted of uh, committing the most heinous of crimes uh, is, you know, somewhat cruel punishment. Now, I don't know if being executed by firing squad would be any less cruel in air quotes um but you know and and i'm not a doctor and i i don't play one on television so i can't tell you you know the the physiological uh, impacts of being shot to death um but it is something that bears discussion uh and advocates against um 
executions of prisoners often cite that it is a a cruel uh, and, and a cruel punishment to exact uh, rather than just you know putting someone in jail for the rest of their life. Now you know the counter arguments are you know it is quote more cost effective because the cost of housing an inmate uh, you know for however many years they remain alive uh, could could be very exorbitant as well. Uh, so that there's a huge uh, debate sort of going on under the surface about what is the best thing to do when someone has been convicted you know of these uh, capital crimes and where the law determines that the death penalty is appropriate. How do we you know we execute someone that is both um, effective and you know cost efficient? Uh, is there a way uh, to to do it? Is is the electric chair a more uh, a less cruel and and less costly method? You know, and you know you take into account that most death row inmates sit on death row, uh, and I've seen statistics on this uh, for something like an average of six to ten years or more, uh, while their case goes through the various stages of appeal and, and uh, uh, adjudication and so forth before an execution is, you know, completed. So, you know, it, it's something else to think about. Um, but it, it was interesting to note that, you know, uh, among subjects that the majority of the people impacted uh, are not, you know, people of color, although the split between white and black uh, is only about 50, 50 or 60 inmates. But still, uh, something worth thinking about. Uh, we'll dig into this a little bit more and we'll come back to it on a future episode because uh, this is, has piqued my curiosity about the question of how do we uh, effectively carry out a, a lawfully arrived at sentence of death for an inmate. You know, and, and some of the things I've heard in the past, and, and, and kind of as a spoiler alert, uh, one, there have been proposals to limit the number of appeals that an inmate would get to a certain number. And I've heard, you know, the number uh, three uh, uh, bandied about because uh, a lot of these cases go through appeal after appeal after appeal uh, while different little elements of the case are, are brought before judges to uh, try to overturn the execution order. Um, you know, there have been people uh, through the past uh, a couple of decades who, has, who have advocated for a three-strikes approach to the appeal process. Um, there are, of course, the advocates who say uh, it, it is not within the government's purview to murder people. Uh, but as said earlier, incarcerating someone for, you know, an extended period of time uh, is in some cases prohibitively expensive. So, you know, there, there is that element. You know, and, and, you know, the arguments go on and on and back and forth. So 
Um, I'm going to dig into that a little bit and we'll come back in a future episode and, and do a follow up on this. So put a pin in this and we will talk about it again. And we'll close out this segment with uh, something I'm going to categorize under the, oh, really, are we that thin-skinned category? Uh, Mississippi TV meteorologist and news anchor Barbie Bassett has been removed from her local channel after she quoted Snoop Dogg on air. Uh, Earlier uh, this month, uh, the news uh, reader made a reference to the popular rapper and appeared to have vanished from broadcast for the NBC affiliate WLBT since March 8th. Uh, the, the words came during a discussion about the rapper's addition to his line of wines, according to news reports about the event. While uh, presenters were chatting about the musician, uh, Barbie was heard saying, faux shizzle my nizzle, live on air when the idea of Snoop Dogg's collaboration with a newsroom journalist was floated in the argument. Uh, you know, Barbie served as the, chief, the station's chief meteorologist and anchor, and she's not been seen on screen since she uttered the phrase. Um, so, <laughs> are we really that thin-skinned? Uh, I guess the answer is, faux shizzle my nizzle. All right, we're going to take our break here, and we'll be right back after... Uh, this public service announcement. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I gotta tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting? Yeah. When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast here on WJMS Media. So, as I said earlier, we've been doing this podcast now for a few years, uh, about three years uh, and a little bit. And we've talked about the idea of term limits uh, for House and Senate members uh, in prior episodes. And... uh, This past week, an article came up uh, speaking to that exact point. Uh, And, you know, I am a believer that, you know, someone spending 30 plus years or more uh, as an elected official in Washington, D.C., you lose touch. You're you're not in communication or contact uh, with your constituents. And, you know, as we've talked about here on this show, uh, even when you are, uh, the tendency on, on both sides of the aisle from time to time is to ignore the common uh, concerns of the constituency, as evidenced by the fact that several uh, legislative items that have wide and broad and deep support among the American people uh, end up being bypassed, ignored, or you know otherwise discounted 
when it comes to legislation that comes to the floor of the House or the Senate. So in, in my radar this week uh, brought me an article um, from Fox News uh, that uh, speaks about a bill that is uh, proposed in the House, uh, and it is uh, a what is called a joint resolution. And this is a bill that is uh, proposed in the House and uh, concurrently in the Senate, or vice versa, uh, that uh, both bodies uh, will vote upon. So the article, uh, the headline is House GOP votes on following through with vote on major change to the Constitution. And uh, it uh, talks about how earlier this year, uh, South Carolina GOP Representative Ralph Norman introduced H.J. Resolution 11, uh, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would limit those serving in the House to three terms for a total of six years and those serving in the Senate to two terms for a total of 12 years. Uh, and these are in line with, with what we have discussed here on this show. I believe I uh, advocated for a three-term limit for Senate and a um, four-term limit for House, but you know it's along the same lines. So we'll, we'll go with what uh, Representative Norman is uh, proposing here. And uh, he cites that we've gotten great response from other Republicans who also support term limits, Norman said of his proposed amendment in a statement to Fox News Digital this week. This was one of Representative McCarthy's promises, and we intend on following through with making sure it gets done. And, and basically, the meat and potatoes of it are for those elected, uh, among other things, for those elected during a special election to fill a vacancy, the proposal, according to Norman's office, defines the length of a, quote, qualifying term, close quote, as at least one year in the House of Representatives and at least three years in the Senate, or essentially half a regular term. Uh, so the uh, Republicans, which include you know, Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, uh, as a Republican of Ohio, um, and as mentioned, Representative Ralph Norman, are reaffirming their push for a vote on a constitutional amendment to limit the number of terms those in Congress may serve. Norman also said he is, quote, talking to Judiciary Committee and uh, Rep. Jim Jordan to make sure H.J. Res. 11 gets scheduled for markup, and then it will definitely go through regular order. A uh, gentleman by the name of Russell Dye, who serves as the Communications Director and Counsel for the House Judiciary Committee, told Fox News that Norman's measure is something that the committee and Jordan plan to evaluate. Uh, his quote was, of course, Mr. Jordan supports term limits, and this is something we plan on obviously looking at. Norman's office said that the measure, which received bipartisan support and has 86 co-sponsors, starts the term limit counter after ratification. Put a pin there, we'll come back and talk about that meaning that politicians elected prior to that date would not yet be subject to term limits. His quote is, It is inappropriate for our elected leaders to make long-term careers off the backs of the American taxpayer, uh, he told Fox News Digital in January. We've seen the corruption it can lead to. While there is value in experience, 
it's easy to become disconnected from those you serve after too many years in Washington. Most Americans support term limits, but the problem is convincing politicians they ought to serve for a period of time and then go home and live under the laws they enacted. In agreement, Maine Representative Jared Golden, the first Democrat to co-sponsor the amendment offered by Norman, said earlier this year that the House of Representatives was never intended at its inception to be a place where someone served for 30 years. Mainers voted in support of term limits in a large part because they don't believe elected office should be a long-term career, Golden said at the time. Instead, they want fresh ideas and new leadership. Term limits will go a long way towards delivering those ideas and leadership in Washington. Uh, the article continues, Norman's proposed amendment, which has been offered in the past, is exactly the type of measure Florida GOP Congressman Matt Gates, a key holdout in Kevin McCarthy's bid to become Speaker, uh, is pushing for. I'm a proud co-sponsor of Representative Norman's legislation for a constitutional amendment that would limit House members to three terms, or six years, and senators to two terms, or 12 years, Gates told Fox News Digital in January. During the week-long negotiations with Speaker McCarthy, we secured a historic opportunity to finally have a vote on term limits in the, on the House floor and will aggressively pursue its passage, uh, he added at the time. The measure also received support from Kentucky GOP Representative James Comer, who serves as chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and said earlier this year, during an appearance on Fox News Channel's America's Newsroom, that his constituents are, quote, excited about term limits legislation. Uh, he's quoted, the people in Kentucky back home this weekend, they were excited about the changes in the rules, Comer said. They were most excited about term limits. You know, this is something that Republicans campaigned on every election, but yet we haven't had a term limits vote in the six years I've been in Congress. So I'm glad we're going to do that. We're finally going to do the things that we campaigned on. GOP Representative Don Bacon also expressed support for an, a vote on term limits, telling reporters this year that he believes the measure would be a good thing for House members to vote on, but that he doesn't see it going far in the Senate. The idea of limiting congressional service has been tossed around among lawmakers for years, but it has never resulted in any serious legislation as members continue their decades-long careers in both chambers. Uh, the article then cites, uh, there are 11 members currently serving in either the House or Senate who have worked more than 35 years in one or both chambers. For instance, the longest-serving member of Congress is GOP Senator Chuck Grassley, whose career in politics spans nearly 65 years from his time as a member of the Iowa House of Representatives in 1959. Grassley was first elected to the U.S. House in 1975 and later to the Senate in 1980, where he served as chair of multiple committees during his more than 48-year career in federal politics. Following Grassley, Massachusetts Democrat Senator Ed Markey, who served in the House for nearly 40 years before becoming the junior senator for the state in 2013, has a combined 46-year career in both chambers. Uh, the article lists additional members 
Other current members of Congress who have more than 35-year career in federal politics include Oregon Democrat Senator Ron Wyden, 42 years, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, 42 years, Kentucky GOP Representative Hal Rogers, 42 years, New Jersey DOP, uh, sorry, GOP Representative Chris Smith, 42 years, Maryland Democrat Representative Steny Hoyer, uh, 41 years, Illinois Democrat Senator Dick Durbin, 40 years, Ohio Democratic Rep. Uh, Marcy Captor, 40 years, Senate Major uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, 38 years, and Maryland Democratic Senator Ben Cardin, 36 years. So the idea is that, you know, this this push for term limits, something that has been, has, as the article states, uh, has been a talking point uh, in elected politics uh, for decades. Uh, this goes way, way back uh, in, in the political realm. Uh, it is not a new concept, but it is one that has uh, year after year, decade after decade, failed to garner any uh, real traction in terms of getting implemented. Uh, the American people clearly are in favor of some type of term limits for their elected officials in Washington uh, as they understand that the longer uh, politicians spend time inside the bubble of D.C., the less connected they are to what's going on back home and what the impact of the legislation that they're creating have, in fact, on the everyday lives of you know, uh, us Americans out here uh, in the real world. Um, it has, as I said, it has been uh, proposed numerous times, uh, and every time it has has never received a a vote beyond uh, you know committee level voting. Uh, to my knowledge, it has never uh, been brought out of committee to the floor for consideration uh, by either body. So you know it remains to be seen whether. Uh, this version, this iteration of a term limits proposal for House and Senate will gain uh, any traction. Uh, it's clear that something needs to be done about the disconnected uh, status of our Washington politicians from you know, the real world out here in America. And maybe, just maybe, uh, this proposal uh, given what we've been through in, you know, in the last uh, seven years uh, on, and longer, uh, maybe this time may be the charm. We will see. I wanted to come back and I, I said put a pin in this uh, comment about uh, happening after ratification. Bear in mind that constitutional amendments require not only uh, the necessary votes in the House and Senate uh, and signature by the president. But then it goes to the states and it needs to be ratified uh, by 38 states uh, in the country before the amendment takes effect in the Constitution. Now, this is not a, a simple or short process. Uh, by example, the Equal Rights Amendment uh, finally received its last ratifying vote uh, roughly 
38 years after the amendment was passed by, by Congress and signed. Uh, in fact, it had been so long that it had exceeded the allowed time frame for uh, constitutional amendments uh, to be ratified by the states by you know, many years. Uh, so keep in mind that even though this sounds like a proposal that may have some traction to get beyond just uh, the House floor or the Senate floor, uh, the process to put it into place is going to take time. And while it is under uh, ratification by the states, uh, it is not yet in effect. So you know, those who are elected will continue to serve for as long as they keep getting reelected until those, the term limits kick in, at which point then the clock will begin ticking. So, you know, if, if it takes, you know, 10 years for the states to ratify, uh, it could be, you know, as much as 16 years before the term limits begin to take effect on, you know, those that are uh, elected in the body. So, you know, again, this is, this is not a quick fix. This is a long-term, long-game uh, approach. And, you know, as I said a a few minutes ago, um, I have long been an advocate for term limits for elected officials. You know, the the founders did not intend, as the article stated, for someone to be elected to the House or to the Senate and to remain there for, you know, decades at a time. Uh, Their concept was that you would be elected, you would come to Washington to serve, And after, you know, one term or, you know, maybe two terms, you would return home and go back to your your prior life. Uh, That way there would be a continual influx of uh, new ideas, new opinions, new leadership uh, that would help to move the country forward uh, in a positive way. So this notion of some people serving, you know, 40 years uh, in the House or the Senate uh, was was never something that was conceptualized by the founders of our country. So hopefully um, this uh, makes it through and, you know, within <laughs> my lifetime at least, I hope that it, it comes uh, to fruition. Uh, but the key is uh, we are going to have to make sure that we are driving uh, the the effort for this forward. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're going to need to be talking to our local legislative uh, officials as uh, the bill, if it's passed, comes uh, out for ratification. Uh, we need to be talking to our, our uh, House and Senate representatives in Washington uh, to keep the pressure on them to move this forward and and move it out of committee and out to the floors to vote it uh, in favorably and get it to the president uh, for his or her signature. And, you know, then make sure that we stay on top of the process and get this ratified. So there's there's some optimism that we can have. uh, But, you know, if we look at history, uh, there's a lot of pessimism that, you know, there are politicians out there who are going to see this 
as an attack on their power and you know will will look to undermine or or otherwise scuttle the bill uh, before it comes to its full fruition so you know I, I don't I don't know how long this is going to take but as long as we're here doing our show we will keep an eye on it and let you know how what progress is being made and finally uh, as we've talked about on this show uh, over the the previous uh, few episodes or since January when the new Congress took over uh, in order for him to be elected speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, had to uh, essentially uh, do a deal with the devil with the 20 some odd um, hardcore right-wing MAGA holdouts uh, in order to get the votes he needed uh, it it appears that you know this prior uh, article I was talking about about the um, the term limit uh, bill uh, is one of them, and as we've seen over the past uh, weeks, uh, it, there have been several that uh, we are are learning about as they are being implemented. Um, one of the things, and I'm not sure if this was part of the the bargain that McCarthy had to strike, uh, but uh, there's a an article that came out uh, that talks about uh, the GOP is considering protecting uh, former President Trump with a law shielding ex-presidents from prosecution. So, and this was, uh, you know, again, came out over the weekend. Uh, a trio of House Republican committee chairs say the House of Representatives could soon take up legislation to strip state and local prosecutors of the authority to prosecute former presidents in response to uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's potential indictment of former President Donald Trump. Uh, in a letter to Mr. Bragg, House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, uh, Oversight and Committee Chair James Comer, and House Administration Committee Chair Brian Steele rejected arguments the Manhattan prosecutor gave in response to the trio's demand that he give evidence before their panels about the ongoing investigations into Mr. Trump. And let me pause there and, and kind of maybe fill in a few points. Uh, the, the aforementioned committee chairs have sent letters to, uh, to the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office asking him to give them access to uh, transcripts and other records and documents related to the uh, ongoing investigation of the former president uh, in matters in the state of New York. And uh, to his credit, the Manhattan district attorney has uh, uh, alternately ignored their requests or said that they are not entitled to them as they are state uh, legal matters and uh, outside of the purview of the federal government. Well, of course, uh, that probably didn't sit right with uh, Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, uh, among the other three. Uh, so they are escalating up the, the game by uh, proposing legislation that essentially would strip the, uh, the state and, and local district attorneys of the power to prosecute a former president. Uh, and since Donald Trump is the first former president to be 
uh, investigated uh, at the state level to this extent, uh, it's clear that they are forming the wagons around the, around the former president uh, and, and looking for any means possible to insulate and defend him from these, uh, these allegations and these charges. So, you know, the, the article uh, continues. Um, Mr. Bragg's probe could result in the twice-impeached ex-president becoming the first former U.S. chief executive to face criminal charges uh, over hush money payments he made uh, to an adult film star back in 2018. Last week, Mr. Bragg's office slammed the March 20th uh, demand for his testimony as an unprecedented inquiry into pending local prosecution, which only arose after Donald Trump created a false expectation that he would be arrested the next day and his lawyers reportedly urged Congress to intervene. Uh, the, the quote, uh, your letter treads into territory very clearly reserved to the states. It suggests that Congress's investigation is being conducted solely for the personal aggrandizement of the investigators or to, quote, punish those investigated and is therefore, quote, indefensible. Uh, Leslie Dubeck, who is Mr. Bragg's general counsel, uh, sent that response to the chairman on Thursday. In response to that, uh, Jordan, Comer, and Steele said their inquiry is legitimate because the potential in criminal indictment of a former president of the United States by an elected local prosecutor of the opposing political party, uh, in parentheses, and who will face the prospect of re-election, close parentheses, implicates substantial federal interests. They added that Mr. Bragg's work falls under the jurisdiction of Mr. Jordan's House Judiciary Committee because that panel and Congress has, quote, a specific and manifestly important interest in preventing politically motivated prosecutions of current and former presidents by elected state and local prosecutors, particularly those tried before elected state and local trial-level judges. Therefore, the Committee on the Judiciary, as part of its broad authority to develop criminal justice legislation, must now consider whether to draft legislation that would, if enacted, insulate current and former uh, presidents from such improper state and local prosecutions, they said. The ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, has condemned his GOP colleagues' actions as, quote, nonsensical interference, close quote, committed at the behest of Mr. Trump, who faces multiple criminal investigations into his conduct being overseen by Mr. Bragg, as well as Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis and a federal special counsel, Jack Smith. Uh, these committee chairs, uh, according to Raskin, have acted totally outside their proper powers to try and influence a pending criminal investigation at the state level. Because the Senate has a Democratic majority and the White House is held by President Biden, it is highly unlikely that any bill shielding ex-presidents from uh, prosecution could ever be enacted into law. But House Republicans have vowed to use their authority 
to protect Mr. Trump even as the criminal investigations into his conduct move closer to the charging stage. A spokesperson for the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee told The Independent, the trio GOP committee chairs who signed the letter to Mr. Bragg believe former President Trump is above the law. Uh, Quote, this outrageous position is further evidence of former President Trump and MAGA extremists hold on congressional Republicans, he said. So the the upshot here is uh, everybody is uh, trying to play hardball and bring pressure to bear on these uh, state uh, level uh, district attorneys. Uh, And, you know, it is it is also clear that, you know, there is uh, some level of uh, impact and string pulling uh, being done by the former president to, you know, pull any lever he can to avoid uh, any uh, charges being levied and, you know, uh, trials, convictions, etc. So, you know, it, it, it still is a game being played uh, by the Republicans uh, to bend the law to their needs, uh, regardless of what the real uh, the the real law requires, uh, what the real law would indicate, uh, and and holding uh, the former president accountable for these these items that he is being investigated and ultimately uh, could be charged with. Uh, the the drama continues uh, as we wend our way toward the 2024 uh, election cycle in earnest. Uh, it will be interesting to see what, if any, impact uh, this action or these actions will have on uh, whatever the chances that uh, the former president will once again uh, be able to run for office and, you know, ostensibly, you know, win re-election to the presidency. Obviously, we are going to keep tabs on this uh, as all the news media is abuzz with this. So we will let you know what transpires. Uh, so stay tuned and keep it locked with WJMS Media and Fired Up. Uh, we will keep updating this as long as the updates are out there for us to get. So with that note, I want to thank everybody for Uh, tuning in. I appreciate your listenership. Uh, If you have questions or comments, please reach out to the show via our uh, email address, which is firedupradio at yahoo.com. And you can check out this and other uh, Fired Up uh, podcasts on our uh, archive sites and our on-demand sites, uh, which include Spotify, uh, Google Play, Apple, iTunes, uh, and, and others. Uh, or just go to your search engine of choice, put in the search term Fired Up w- at WJMS, and you will get links to our show uh, and to the WJMSradio.com website where you can find all of our episodes right there. And please go check them out uh, and forward your comments to me via the email address. That's going to do it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it greatly. Everybody, please stay safe. Uh, We are starting to see, at least up here in the Northeast, 
what looks like spring weather happening. So uh, get out there and enjoy it. And everybody have a great week. And I look forward to talking with you again in seven days.